to the Big News Podcast, and serendipity has it that I'm talking to one of my favorite songwriters and singers and guitar players. I always love this guy's work, and I'm sure many of you know him. His name is Pete Droge, and we were just talking a conversation about, I don't know what, we just got a hold of each other and started having a friendly musician-to-musician chat, and the thing that Pete was talking about and I never, we never really sat down and talked before, but he's so articulate. And the thing he was saying was so interesting. I'm like, hey, let me do an annoying thing and grab this app that can pull this up for like a, you know, podcast. And he good-naturedly agreed to do that. So Pete Droge, ladies and gentlemen, speaking from Vashon Island, Washington. And he just, Hello? yeah, can you hear me? I can. Yeah, so you as you just explained to me that it was like a very strange, anomalous place, very politically blue, but on a very super rural place. What what do you kind of, what can you see if you drive down the road? You see a lot of Douglas fir trees, alder trees, madrona trees. Come out our road, you'll see some you know llamas and. Um, Everywhere you go, you'll hit a beach because it's an island, and it's a true island. There's no bridge. Right. Uh-huh. Um, it's a it's a really beautiful spot. Kind of classic Northwest vibe. And uh, and what about the people? Do they wear truckers hats or something else? Uh, not a lot of truckers hats. You know, you'll definitely see kind of the, you know, you might see some of the kind of Portlandia stereotype. Northwestern crunchy granola types. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You'll see, you know, people who like yoga. It's a high concentration of artist types on the island. There's lots of people who do multiple things. We noticed. Yeah, my like wife, what? My wife Elaine Summers has a uh, is part of a tile guild, and we noticed in the tile guild these uh, friends of hers that had multiple disciplines like crazy combinations like there's one who's a lawyer a tile artist and a belly dancer it's the lawyer that kind of throw you know makes it strange yeah. it's like adding yeah. a soup yeah and you have you know and she'll go to burning man and you know belly dance with fire and stuff yeah i suppose it's good if she's a litigator there you go you know get that get that into the courtroom and nobody knows what to do with it yeah it sounds very good. So it's when I spot. Ask, it's, you know, we've been here 21 years, and you know, feel we've got a really unique community, and we've just built great friendships and bonds with the folks here. Now, you know, the word community, which I'm just going to seize on for a second. When we when you first started talking pre-podcast recording, I was kind of interested in that. You said it, and an island is a place of like insularity, somehow <clears throat> isolated. And you mentioned the word community, and it conjured up all these ideas. It's something that we talk about a lot, community, but it seems to me that it's real for you. And maybe describe, you know, what what it feels like to have a community, what it, what it is when it's not just printed on a piece of paper. That's a good question. I think. Um... You know, with with our crowd that we run around with, there's a lot of music involved. So, um, you know, music is at the center of a lot of it. So there's a friend of ours who 
as fire pits a lot. So this is kind of casual, you know, gathering around the fire and singing songs. And she has a lot of house concerts. Right. Um, so music is definitely, for for us, a big part of it. Um, but there's cross-pollination between disciplines. So we've got other friends that are involved in different creative endeavors. I think there's a sense of um, kind of cross-pollinating and, and uh, being inspired by one another. Um, do you guys eat together? Um, you know, we don't do as much of that as we oftentimes talk about wanting to do, to do more. Um, so that's something that, you know, we always threaten to have more dinner parties. And <laughs> When um, the music is filling you up, you guys go hungry. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, at, at the fire pits, yeah, there'll be, we'll break bread at those. So, yeah, there'll be, you know, kind of a potluck kind of vibe, or sometimes she'll bring in a caterer. And, um, and yeah, well, we had, like, a birthday celebration, you know, big long table outdoors in the summertime, so that kind of stuff. You know, I was talking to this guy I met. I went out and did this little book tour, and I met this very interesting guy. He's this black guy. He's born in South Philly. Um and he came to my thing, and he was just kind of there, super handsome guy, very tall, looked like a movie star, an athlete. And he, uh, you know, from South Philly, imagine, you know, just a, a super, super urban area, as he, you know, didn't even really have to describe it. He just said, you know, we're from the South there. And, and he put himself through MIT, and he, his name is Lamar Kendrick. And he has this idea, which is was hard for me to understand at first. It wasn't simply about creating new resources for people in urban areas, which is what I first intuited it as, which sounded like a noble idea. How how people who are very brilliant and you know got great ideas might not have the resources to put these things into motion. And he wanted to help people, but as I understood it more. And, I mentioned this because it relates to this idea of community and the fire pits and something. But what he was saying is, no, 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 Peter, you got it wrong. It's not about, you know, some people parachuting in with with uh, money. And what it really is, is that with the intrusion, and this is kind of my understanding of it, of technology, of even artificial intelligence, of industrialization, of uh, sort of robot robotics and so on there's this there's in his words at least as I understood them we're almost at the threshold of of a place where people don't really understand where they belong anymore not only what their jobs are and people are very you know fearful of losing their jobs but like who am I in all of this what is my value as a person and, and when I hear you describe these fire pits and these uh, this community which bonds over something as spiritual in one way as music, um, first of all, it makes me kind of envious, but I, I wonder how you would speak to this idea of how this community could enrich someone or fight against the sort of intrusion of, of the 
parts of, of technology which seem to dehumanize us and separate us from our values? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, just kind of disconnecting from that stuff and just sitting around a fire is just, there's just something so primal about it. Um, so I think for me, I could just sort of speak personally, maybe less about the sort of community factor, but thinking, you know, for me, I have to actively choose to disconnect mm -hmm. that sort of mm -hmm. technological external stimulation, and especially in wake of the, the election and stuff. Yeah. I, and, I don't, it was and again, like, sorry, the, the great paradox that we're talking on iPhones, I'm recording it for a podcast. That aside, yeah. you know, continue, but, you know, yeah. I, we live in it. But I, I found for myself I had to basically orchestrate my day in a way that I avoided all that kind of connection um, until later in the day. So, you know, one quick check of email in the morning just to make sure nothing's completely on fire, but... After that, I try to just kind of be in the world, you know, be in the natural world and then kind of make space for creativity and, um, you know, spend some time in the morning writing and then kind of my morning routine of, you know, walking and yoga and meditation and then what I call creative practice, go go into the studio and just do creative work. Um, but... You know, obviously, I'm using technology in that creative work, but um, I don't know. I think we're in an interesting time where our, our uh, the devices and the connectivity sort of um, they can serve as a, a substitute for that idea of community and connection. I think sort of a um, almost like a I mean, not that there isn't connection in that. And that type of communication, like a you know a Facebook message or a Snapchat mm -hmm. update or something. Mm -hmm. But I feel like my general sense of that stuff is it, it oftentimes feels like empty calories. Yes. Um, but then again, I mean, we're talking now as a result of my responding to your TED Talk. Right. You know, which I don't really engage in that way that often on Facebook, but I was just really moved by it. And... You know, just put my little comment in there and then gave me your Facebook message and now here we're talking. So in a sense, you know, it's not entirely empty calories, but that at times is my impression yes, of, I, of, the, I, of the technology and how it sort of um, inundates our life. I mean, I, what I think I hear you saying, and, and I, you know, I'm hearing what I already tend to agree with, unfortunately, which is, you know, we're not trying to be aesthetics on a mountain or total Luddites or anything, but but it does take a certain amount of will, of volition and cognizance to say, look, I understand the advantages of this technology and they're, they're manifold, but I at the same time, I also see them as dangerous to, to health, to well-being, emotional, physical probably. Um, and I have to create some kind of strategy, as you say you've done, to limit and forestall the effects. I'm going to spend just to see if a fire is burning in the morning 
and then I'm going to let go of it and maybe come back later. And I think that that's a really good message for a lot of people that it it takes a certain amount of volition and a, and you know sort of strategizing. Well, what what could I? How could this be an advantage to me to disengage more often? Because there's something about you mentioned empty calories. There's things in the world that are very analogous to empty calories and salt, sugar, and fat in any form. Um, it's just like pornography. You know, sex in the right time, in the right place is a wonderful thing. It's very uh, humanizing. But at the other end of the extreme, and I, and I kind of use this as a metaphor for technology, is it's really damaging. Just as, you know, occasional nip on some chocolate is good too, but like if you start getting into it and become obese or whatever, it's a problem. In the same way with technology, it's seductive. What's everyone yeah. doing? I feel like I need to know and feel a part, and I also need to have everyone know about me. And then you, you enter this horrible rabbit hole. And I think you've set up a wonderful, somewhat, at least to my mind, it seems very idyllic, something that I would like to do. Not only are you on the Sean Island, but you've created another island of purposeful insularity for yourself and for your family and to you know protect your creativity. Yeah, I think um it it for me is a matter of like setting a tone for the day. And if you know, if I jump on my iPad in the morning and just start tunneling around and letting sort of random information enter my psyche, that's you know, it's like it's like Russian roulette as far as Right, right. And you're right. No, and and it's it's often gonna lead to some variety of outrage. And right. um, it's gonna create either anger or fear or you know, it's gonna be an emotion yeah. That you wonder what was the benefit in my now consuming this so that I now feel like this. You have to say, yeah. hmm. And I think that there are many forces, and I do think there's a consciousness to, to for, for example, news of all stripes. I'm not talking only about Fox. I'm talking about CNN. I'm talking about everything. You know, it's classic that there's a sowing of fear. That's all part of it. And we're just talking about the news itself. And then this sense that they're offering solutions as well, which, you know, it's kind of hypnotic and arresting. So you'd be sucked in by the fear. Yeah. And then you're sort of seduced by the idea that the more I watch, the more I'll figure this out. But in truth, the business model is there's no figuring it out. And yeah. certainly they don't have the answers anyway. Stay with us. Stay tuned, and you know you'll learn all about this. Yeah. Plus, I think there's you know the you know what they call FOMO, the fear of missing out, Mm. is another factor I think that's kind of dangerous in that realm of you know kind of um, needing to sort of be on the on the teat, as it were, you know, the information teat, like. you know, my little joke, like in, in sort of news fasting, like my wife Elaine will be a bit more 
tuned in usually earlier in the day than I will, and I'll just sort of say, have they blown up the world yet? Yeah, right. And, you know, there's a curiosity there, like, has anything happened that I should know about, you know? But, you know, a lot of my motivation around this was recognizing the the cost that uh, I was paying in my creative life. And uh, so I just really wanted to be very mindful and intentional about creating a, a routine that kind of, uh, you know, opens the door for the muse to come in. And I know your your podcast is called The Big Muse, and I'm yet to read your book. I look forward to reading your book. So, <laughs> well, I'm going to send all my guests one. What what's that? I'm definitely going to send you one. That way, I cool. can a, so I can sign it. There you go. But you know, it's that that was a big motivator for me was just um, you know wanting to really live the life of a full time writer, basically. And, and musician and value that enough that I'm not going to clutter my consciousness with uh, other things that, you know, um, that kind of poison the well, you know, and it's, it's worked out uh, well. I feel, you know, I feel better in general after sort of tweaking that. Now, if you're not comfortable with this, I'm going to edit it right out, but I I did want to, where we picked up, we were talking before I turned on the record button that you had some health challenge. You can, you know, describe it. And and sort of, I asked you, you know, was there any sort of advantages to, to this thing? Obviously, clearly there's millions of challenges. And, and what you said, uh, was really interesting to me. Well, um, yeah, I was, you know, I've basically just had really low energy for the last year and a half um, as a result of some chronic infections. And so it's been, at times, super frustrating because, you know, there's so many things that I want to do. Um, and so the the, you know, the shift has been kind of, you know, a new lease on life, basically. And even while still in the midst of, of having very limited energy, um, I just kind of have a, it's been a real big reset as far as my appreciation for the time that I, you know, get to spend basically in my workshop. You know, just those, after, you know, trying a strategy of healing, which was just, okay, I'm just going to rest. I'm going to double down on rest. and I'm just going to sleep as much as I can, and I'm not going to work, and I'm not going to push myself, and I'm not going to, you know, introduce um, activities that could lead to sort of overstimulation and stress. And I really tried to be, you know, a good patient and just, you know, put my put my energies towards healing, but then I just got so stir-crazy. Um that I decided, well, if I'm just going to, if I'm going to be exhausted anyway, I'd like to be at least chipping away at what I love doing, which is making records and writing songs. So it's definitely even, even in the short term where I'm uh, still not able to work anywhere near the, you know, amount of time that I could before, 
but I just I so value the time that I get in the studio, especially. You know, I just uh, I don't know how it's been for you, but it can you know it can get to feel a little bit routine mm-hmm. and and kind of you know I don't want to say punching the clock because I always do have just so much gratitude and appreciation for what I get to do but um so it it it's painting too extreme of a picture to sort of say before I was just you know not attentive to it or not appreciative because I was but it's like a heightened sense of appreciation and gratitude just for being able to show up and have a pair of ears and a song to work on, you know. You know, it it is really, I think it's so many things come down to this, just the introduction of gratitude where, where I mentioned you, you've taken a strategy of, you know, kind of weaning yourself off the information tea to, you know, but but doing it strategically, mm-hmm. and in a weird way, I've recently discovered strategically introducing ways to gain gratitude. It's like, well, that's an odd idea. I never really had that, you know. Sort of willing myself toward that. Um, it just it has made me see one aspect of my life. And I'm sure you share this thing too. I, I I couched it in these terms to a friend of mine on the phone. I said, "Yeah, I had a really amazing year last year." I said, "I made like 25 million dollars," and he laughed, and you know, because he knows I didn't. But I said, right. "I really feel like I did, um, except I spent it all on having all this autonomy." Right. And and that's something that I've only recently been so cognizant of, so grateful for, that you and I, in the middle of the day, at you know, it's twelve thirty-five on the on the West Coast here, we're just kind of having a conversation about stuff, and nobody's coming in and telling us we got to go back under the fluorescent lights. Right. And I don't mean to be, you know, uh, glib about that, or you know, it's not bragging or anything but it the more we're focused on that the more we can focus on the gratitude of just having a simple experience yeah and and then from there there's also in my mind a sense of responsibility you know that well given that we have this stuff and given that we've just each spent 25 million last year mm-hmm. on getting this opportunity what will we give ourselves and what will we give to others what will we create yeah what meaningful thing can we create and and for you when you mentioned this uh health challenge that you're having it's i said i i understand what you're saying it's it's a heightened awareness yeah and a sense of time um yesterday you know, I was supposed to go to Israel this Sunday. Like, just leave for Israel. It was a friend of mine, like a recent friend of mine, who came down with a terrible diagnosis, and he was he's in hospice. And I don't know if he's going to literally live to when I'm there, and I'm only going to see him. So I had somebody, like, uh, he had another musician that lives in Israel. I said, can you, like, check and see how he is? And guys calls me 
seems like he was crying. He said, look, I've been with him. They say he's got like two hours to live. And, you know, there's a guy I know, he's got kids. And again, it's such an old cliche. I mean, count your blessings, but I'm talking about focusing on that as a strategy. You know, this thing could not help but make me think of that. Yeah. And so what, what, even in this conversation, what can we create that can, you know, be a benefit to us and, you know, maybe one or two people that tuned in and, and you have, you know, your music, which I just, when I, when I heard it, I just want to guide people. If they don't know you are Pete Droge, your stuff is still as relevant now as it was when you started putting it out. It was like in the, Early nineties, was yeah, that before my first record came out in ninety four? Yeah, it's just like it. It didn't lose anything. You weren't relying on gimmicks then. I'm sure you're not doing it now. I'm just kind of, you know, kind of drilling into the small things in life. Not trying to make a huge, you know, pop music impact. Um, you know, shaking your ass for anybody. It was just like, all right. Stay with me for a while and, you know, maybe hear what I have to say. I'm going to sing it anyway. Yeah. But you, you also have amazing, you know, chops. Your technical skills are super, super high, which is is attractive. You know, sometimes I, I suppose they're not totally necessary. You know, you have to have some skills, but you, you have it all. And I, you know... It's good that you're still making music. And do you ever wonder sometimes, like, who's listening and what's the point since the whole industry disrupted? Well, you know, one thought that popped into my head, you know, when you kind of, you know, you sort of said, you know, one or two people are listening. It's like, I think that, you know, the idea of gratitude and appreciating the career that I have, you know, it's such a you know, coming up in the 90s, I mean, it was such a massive blockbuster time. Yes. You know, I mean, it was like when I was on major labels, it was during the time that I think, you know, it was really the peak of album sales there in the mid to late 90s. Yeah. So whatever, you know, as a young man in my 20s, you know, making, you know, just making records was always the dream. And I, even as a kid, I was like, I don't care if I get rich and famous, I just want to make records. You know, that was always the draw for me. And I always kind of, the fantasy was almost more like the J.J. Kale model where you can Hmm. do what you want to do, have Eric Clapton go record your songs and make you a bunch of money. And then you get to lay low and not be super famous, but be appreciated by the people who are in the know. Right. But even with that, you know, um, having sort of, you know, under the radar kind of um you know, um minor minor hits in that age it it just at the time looking back I it whatever successes I had as they were happening just felt so inconsequential. You know, it was just like you, nothing felt like it moved the needle. Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. hindsight, I look back and I go, wow, you know, these were, you know, remarkable opportunities. And, you know, there there was some impact there. And it did. Well, you know, it Pete, did. I have I've had the same experience, you know, 
again and again, just trying to sort of process it. And I think yeah. that, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you feel kind of the same way in a sense. I, I'm reminded every day, you know, that while I didn't think I moved any needle at all, you know, you saw that TED talk of mine. It was kind of about this subject. Yeah. You know, the needle was moved. And here is a subject that I just, I, I yammer on about constantly because it's something I'm trying to work out. If we're if we're looking at our lives and at the world in general in quantitative terms, we're trying to measure everything in terms of sales or likes, and you know we're, yep. we're using numbers for things that shouldn't really relate to numbers, human beings and emotions and spiritual and creative ideas. Then we're connection, kind of, yeah. yeah, and connection. These <clears throat> things that can't necessarily be properly quantified, like record sales could be. Yeah. So we have to rest our head out of that mindset in another one and, yeah. and go into another one. And for me, this, sad to say, is these insights are, are are nascent and they're burgeoning even as I speak. It's not like I got this shit down, you know, but, right. I'm, but I'm at 57, I'm kind of learning about the value of quantitatively small things. Yeah. And and because the connections are huge, the human connections and the connections with the world and you know with God, however you can process that, it it's better than the numbers. Because the numbers always leave you bereft. They always leave you counting beans and comparing yeah. one set to another. Yeah, and and in a time when, you know, like my record came out like a month apart from Hootie and the Blowfish's first record, mm, mm. which sold like eight bazillion, you know. So when it, if you're gonna play the numbers game, you know, it's just it's crazy. Yeah, I came out with uh, U2's Joshua Tree. Yeah, and it was like, wait a minute, I thought I was. And like, no, you know, one part of my brain is like, yeah, you really happened. And the other part is, no, you're a poser. If you're Bono, you're somebody. If you're Peter Himmelman, you're not. Yeah. Yeah. I shared management in those days and and have continued collaborative relationship with the guys in Pearl Jam. Yeah. And so that was just, you know, talk about comparing. I mean, that was just like... The level of success that they achieved was, is, you know, was and is just so mind-boggling. Like I would show up to the management office, and there would be a message for Eddie from Oprah. You know, like Oprah's like begging him to come on the show or whatever. It was just like it's hard to walk around like that. It's crazy, and um, yeah. So this is a really rich topic of conversation and and um i too am in kind of a place where i certainly can't kind of go yep check got that all figured out yeah exactly Um, right but i have you know i have thought about it and it's been a really interesting i would say the last 10 years nine years or so have been a pretty um 
uh, you know, it's been a journey of self-discovery and understanding around a lot of these topics. And it was really um, sort of the metrics and that quantitative stuff that you were talking about that actually was really a trigger for me to sort of shake myself out of the endless pursuit of more feathers in my cap. Mm -hmm. And it was almost, you know, sort of financial reward that I had never, uh, you know, uh, achieved before that was the trigger for me to kind of wake up and uh, reassess everything. It was sort of like for the first time I had a good run with some doing music for advertising Mm-hmm. And then ended that run with one of our songs from a record getting licensed in a big national Toyota commercial. And so I realized how much I had sort of always been in pursuit of the carrot. And that carrot was like, once I get X, Y, and Z, and and for me a lot of that was you know sort of financial liberation, then I can relax and enjoy you know, my fantasy of the ultimate artist's life, you know. And so for me, that fantasy was, you know, kind of like, you know, if you look at like the cover of Neil Young, everybody knows this is nowhere, you know, just kind of film grain, romantic, Hmm. sort of 70s, back to the land, rock star kind of fantasy, you know. And what happened once I finally, you know, had enough money in the bank that I didn't have to kind of sweat it, I was actually more uneasy than I was in the pursuit of trying to get there. Well, because when you're when you're in pursuit, what you're really in pursuit of is creativity. And a creativity by in and of itself is is fulfilling. It's fulfillment in itself, aside and apart from these quantitative measures, apart from the carrot. When you're really into a deep creative zone, which lasts, you know, maybe hours at a time, just certainly doesn't last weeks at a time, you're kind of uh, protected from these kinds of carrot-chasing thoughts. Yeah, yes. But then it becomes, well, is that what I should be after? Should I be after more or deeper? Yeah, and and I think the interesting question that I began to ask was why, what for, and what has shown me by you know empirical evidence and experientially what has shown me that this carrot pursuit has actually done anything of value. I mean, everyone yammers about it, the magazines do because they themselves are the beneficiaries of people thinking in these terms advertisements yammer about it. Many musicians yammer about it because they're the beneficiaries, but it doesn't make it any more real. And you almost have to say, I'm going to have to take a bit of a subversive approach here, kind of isolate myself. And if you're not in Vashon Island, you have to create your own little Vashon and your own little creative community. I I think wherever you are, I mean... For me, a lot of it comes down to, you know, what is the motivation behind the work? And I think that that answer can be nuanced, and I think it could be multifaceted. So, you know, for me, a lot of what I began to discover was 
some of that motivation was my ego. You know, mm-hmm. it was yeah, it was sort sure. of you know the classic. I'll show you. You know, so you know then then you begin to ask, well, then why? Why? Well, so I can show myself I'm okay. Right. So if I can or, convince right. the outside world that I'm a success and that I'm I'm good, then maybe ultimately underneath in my sort of uh, unspoken deepest self, maybe then I'll I'll believe that I'm okay. You know. Yeah, and another angle to that, I mean, I completely hear what you're saying. You, you articulate it so well. Is if I have a, this measure of success X, it will be for me like peacock feathers. It will be attractive, and people will be attracted to me. And I and I will assure myself in some weird way, convoluted, illogical way, that I will not be abandoned because at the root of it we are sensitive and in need of love people, all of us, except perhaps if you're a psychopath and you're protected from that mood. Um, You know, it's also a way to ensure that you won't be abandoned, but really nobody cares about anyone because of their money or their quantitative accomplishment. Now, there's a surfeit of care. There's a like a, a sort of a counterfeit care where you have these things called fans. But fans aren't going to feed you soup for an extended period. Or, or worse than that, you know, uh, fellow climbers who view you as a coattail. Right, right. And so what it comes down to is like simply turning – Again, I use the word strategically or rigorously because it is difficult to turn away from things that we're habituated to and feel that offer us protection. To to look for something deeper means to, at least for a, a moment, let go of these things that we've been, you know, as I said, habituated to holding and looking for something else. And the something else is it's. Like you said, I mentioned that idea of community. He said, I, I don't know if I can speak to the whole thing, but I like you know, sitting by a fire. Yeah, It's reducing things down to these more primal, more visceral, more achievable considerations. That's within our grasp, sit around with some friends, strum some guitars around a fire. To get Eddie Vedder's sales, I mean, you know, we have no control. Eddie Vedder doesn't have any more control over it than we do. And it doesn't bring him or anyone else a a modicum of joy. You've read all those studies, right? Those Harvard longitudinal studies on happiness? Yeah. Well, I haven't read the studies, but I've heard them somewhere. Yeah, I mean, the the gist of it is what they found and, you know, over periods of time, studying people for long periods of time where the original uh, institutors of the study had died and somebody else took it over. It was very rare to have that. People like to do their own studies. What they found was you need a minimum amount of money, and it varies from city to city. Yeah. Um, I think some 
it was like sixty thousand dollars. I don't know what it was. Hundred. There's no difference between that minimal amount of money and a hundred million dollars in terms of happiness. Yeah. The only thing that brings somebody happiness is the depths of their relationships and the relationship to their creativity. Yeah. Yeah. And and for me, it was that was kind of the the wake up call for me was, you know, having a number in my bank account that in my mind was supposed to bring upon this sort of new golden era of Free joy and right, yeah, joy. If, you know, if I mean, if only, that was the fantasy, and then th- that happened, and it was like, you know, I was still uneasy, you know, and so that, you know, became a real eye opener for me to kind of look into my motivations, you know, and um, I feel like those motivations are they're really. Um, it's not black and white. So um, going back to like, you know, the idea of abandonment, you know, um, trying to um, get the peacock feathers and, and sort of be uh, outwardly seen as successful can be a real motivator. And I think, you know, look at a lot of ridiculously famous people and, Mm-hmm. in their past is someone that they're trying to prove that they're okay. You know, I'll show right. you, I'm, you know, I'll show you dad who abandoned me or whatever it is. That, right. that story is, is common. And it would be disingenuous to say that it's not a motivator, but a motivator to what ends. Well, I think it's a, it's a component of motivation. I think, um, I know for me, like, as I began to sort of, Look, look into my life. It was my adoption experience that was really pivotal. Mm. So recognizing that sort of deep, deep, deep in my psyche was this belief that I wasn't okay, based on the fact that my birth mother didn't want me. Mm. You know, that was that was, I think, the sort of un, unconscious. There was an unconscious message there that was part of my motivation. Right. To try right. to be, to seem okay on the outside, to convince myself I was all right. But my initial uh, uh, instinct upon discovering that was to throw the baby out with the bathwater and go, okay, so my ego is here because of this belief that I'm not good enough because, you know, my birth mother gave me away. And so that's what's pushed me and motivated me to be driven and, and disciplined and inspired and all this. So I'll just throw all that out. And ultimately what I learned was there's a lot more to that creative impulse than that, even though that could be sort of um, at, part of what was at work and part of what was you know, behind my drive. Ultimately, there's other motivations there as well, and and to me, that's that's a fascinating. Um, yeah, area it's to look to... at those more subtle motivations that are not screaming out for attention. They're not they're not quite as obvious. Yeah, and and that are you know maybe more um, more attuned to 
who we are at our true core, yeah, right, or our true, you know, you know, uh, true self, or whatever. I think they're motivations that could sustain us uh, in a better way. And they're quiet, you know, they sort of stay low while everyone else is making noise, you know. And you're never going to get rid of all those things. You're never, you know, going to have some sort of state of nirvana. It's never going to happen. But by turning, you know, in some methodical way to these other motivations and seeing where there are, it's it could be helpful. I was thinking about what are the times in your life where you're the where you're the least connected to these sort of harmful quantitative motivations, this carrot stick ride. Um. Well, I think you know when you were talking about kind of those you know hours, if we're lucky, where you're just in the flow of the work. Um, I find that that feels like a pure place to me. Mm-hmm. When I can kind of get into just the, you know, really conscious of what I'm doing. Um, and, you know, if I can quiet the mental chatter and the commentary track around a lot of it. Right. There's somebody, you know, while you're in it, you're you're also noticing, hey, I'm in it. Yeah, or just being present and just really, you know, I don't know, just sort of uh, open, you know, just sort of still and open to just be, you know, very in the moment with the work, you know, and and not in a way that, you know, for me, I guess I I could more illustrate it by pointing out, you know, where the pitfalls for me are that sort of snap me out of that place would be be like, oh, hey, this is sounding pretty good. Like, when is this record going to come out? And what are people going to think about it? And I wonder if this is going to be the one that's going to really pop. And, you know. And then the the bubble bursts right then. Well, your your mind is somewhere else, you know. And if, if we're talking about, you know, making records, you know, how, how, how tuned in can you be to just where that little picky acoustic guitar needs to be balance-wise if you're sort of projecting off into the future of this imagined careerism, you know? Right. It's just, it's clutter. And again, it's sort of, you know, again, it's another place where you're sort of... uh you know, you're not inviting in the muse. You know, you're not. Um, you're you're just. It's cluttered. It's this cluttered junk junk food thinking. And I, I and I guess we have to kind of you know accustom ourselves to the switch back and forth. You know, the intrusion of that one voice, um, which is really there. You know, it's basically my whole book is about that voice. Um, I call it Marv, majorly afraid of revealing vulnerability. Mm-hmm. He's just there to protect us because if this doesn't succeed, you know, who, who's going to love us and how, you know, whoa, whoa. And instead of fighting this voice, it's kind of like, all right, you know, I know you're there, but and thank you, but I'm just going to, you know, get back to this, you know, have a seat, yeah, have a have a Pepsi. Nobody drinks Pepsi anymore, do they? <laughs> <laughs> and just sit and, and and I'll get this done. And then sometimes it just goes away. Thank you for acknowledging. Everyone wants to be acknowledged, even that little yeah. voice in our head. 
I can't wait to read the book. That sounds yeah. Cool. Well, when we're done, I'll, I'll you can you know email me your address. I definitely want to send it to you and get your thoughts. But Have you read, I just want to uh, say, you know, it's funny because knowing your music and a guy in music that's really good. I've often thought because I never went to college, um, you know, like I felt a little. I don't know. Maybe I just couldn't cut it. Not quite, you know. Me just musician, but don't you notice? This is a little shout out to musicians somehow. Musicians that that kind of have something going on, and that they're they're a varied bunch. You know, they could just be players or writers, or, but they got a little something. I find that they're so on the ball and amazingly articulate. And because I've only really heard you singing. Not that your lyrics are not articulate, but they're not conversational. It's not a conversation. Mm-hmm. But you're so, uh, and this is me giving you positive feedback because I like you and it's to- totally true. You're so articulate about these these ideas and so transparent. And I, I do think that people get a lot of value from the things you've just said. Well, thanks. I, you know, I think about this stuff a lot and... Um, my wife and songwriting partner Elaine Summers and I, you know, we we have little pretty intense heart to hearts where we, you know, really consider this stuff deeply and um yeah, just trying to figure it all out. Yeah, so it's so you guys have I, I wouldn't you know, my wife and I I couldn't imagine well that's not true because she writes poetry, she's really good, but like collaborating on this stuff. It's just like the two worlds of twain shall not meet. Mm-hmm. I don't think we have those kinds of conversations very often. But it's probably because I don't invite her in enough. That's probably what it is. Yeah. It's For me, it's been kind of like a weird, isolated little space. Like this one space I used to crawl in as a kid. Yeah. And it's, it's very... Uh, it's on the edge of of insularity, yeah, and and probably suffers for it too, you know, for, quite frankly. So that is well, I come up to know, Sean. I'll, I'll bring my guitar. We can co-write. That sounds good. I think uh, you mentioning that, you know, recognizing that that was a place that you um, went to as a kid. Mm-hmm. That's another thing that I find fascinating. In fact, to the sort of what motivates us question, which is recognizing, and that's another thing that, you know, being, uh, you know, having limited energy from these health issues, um, I was sort of, my drug of choice was taken away. Mm. You know, I, oh, productivity oh, I and creativity I and, and working <clears throat> is just, you know, I, I, it so landed on me when you just said that my my on my armor, yeah, my my everything and my coping mechanism, you know, and yeah, my way yeah. of making sense of the world and my way of tuning into how I feel, and and so part of like the soul searching around not being able to just bury myself in the studio whenever I wanted to, and just having so much time, you know, trying to rest and heal, then I kind of I was. Really interested in looking back to, you know, part of that motivation to create was a response to um, 
how how I dealt with emotions as a kid. Right. You know, and so you know, even at 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 this point if sadness arises, you know, I'm motivated to go pick up my guitar. And um so I don't know, I just find that to be a really fascinating area as well that I'm just beginning to sort of circle around trying to understand you know where is you know where is that how is that working in our lives you know and and looking at adolescence in particular you know the 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 mechanisms and the strategies that we adapt at that age you know as we get into middle life you know it may serve us well to question some of those just deep seated ingrained habitual ways of being. And so for me, what was interesting was looking at the creative impulse and and how it related to that. So in in my processing of emotions, um, you know, recognizing how music is part of that. um, It's just the language that I learned to speak to tune in to how I was feeling. It's very. It is. It's. It's very interesting. It also strikes me this thing, you know, going reaching for our guitars if we feel sad, or you know, it's the same stuff we were pulling off when we were twelve and thirteen years old, and now, you know, into our midlife. And it strikes me as because this is so normal for us, how mm-hmm. odd it is for for so many people, you know, who this is just not the kind of life that they lead that they would that poetry and music is such a and, and the creation of it not necessarily the consumption but the creation of it is is just something that they don't do and one of the things is sort of like you mentioned looking at it and maybe part of it isn't a good thing maybe you want to strip it away maybe there's something there that needs to be looked at, but by the by, by the same token, you know, as part of the conceit of my book is for people that have not seen themselves as quote creative types. Um, I'm trying to sort of say, like, look, me and Pete Droge, we sit around and strum some guitars, and we pretty much made our living doing these kinds of things. But it doesn't mean like we're creative types. Sometimes we're just repeating the patterns and habits that we've done all our lives. And it's not novel. It's not fearless. It's not daring. And you, uh, actuary, who are mining data at a desk, you know, in in a white shirt, could be incredibly creative. You know, the ideas that you're gleaning from this disparate material, this information, it's like improvisation in the way that you're dealing with people and the joy that you're bringing to people. You, sir, are a true creative. And in some way, sort of thinking about and destroying the the word itself, creativity, which is so overused. For me... I still love it, though. Yeah, I mean, it means so many things, or it yeah. means nothing all, yeah. all of a sudden. For me, I kind of like to reduce things and you know, drain the big hot air out of them. 
for me, it's for any human being who is not afraid at any moment, who feels rooted to wherever they are and, and not fearful, they're immediately creative. And even if you're full of dread, but you're, you have to act, you're not even fearful. You're not fearful when you're acting, when you're moving. And therefore, you'll be very kind of in touch with your surroundings. You know, I hate to go into another kind of trope, like mindful. Mm-hmm. You will immediately be like a, a jazz drummer. You'll be listening and sensitive to what's going on and responsive to that which is taking place around you. So it's kind of like, you know, democratizing creativity. You don't have to have like a little pork pie hat, which I have, and a little goatee, which my friend's, uh, my wife's friend calls a little cry for help. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true. You know, I think... I'm like losing my hair, so maybe I need to get like a couple more earrings or a ni- maybe a nipple ring or a yeah, neck yeah. tat or something yeah, just yeah. to convince everyone I'm still in the game. Yeah. But anyway, Pete, what a pleasure to talk to you. This we we do have to have another conversation very shortly on the original subject of your message to me on Facebook because yeah, I, I have some ideas and and now getting to know you, it's whatever it is you want to do is going to be very simple for you, and I have resources for you to talk to. So maybe we'll do that next week or whenever you want to give me a call very soon. Sounds good. But to the whomever is listening of the you know Big News podcast, will and hopefully this recorded. Otherwise, it'll just be a great conversation. Yeah. You know, if hope you had a good time will. listening. And I can't wait to read your book. And I'm actually. Uh, on the brink of uh, embarking on my very own podcast. And so maybe uh, next step could be I'll read your book and then we'll talk about that. 100%. I'm I'm totally in. And I'll tell you how to get this app if it worked. Yeah, there you go. Screw it. Get another one. Ladies and gentlemen, Pete Droge. Pete, a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you this afternoon. You too. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Be well. Bye. Take care.